this morning. You know, when Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick, it really is a great story if you've not read it. And it does bring us to where we're at in our text in Jonah. And I want to ask you, have you ever been in that place where you are desperate? Now, we define desperation in America a little different than the rest of the world, don't we? Desperate for some of us is, we've run out of milk today. Someone's got to go to the store. There are four teenage drivers, and this is what goes on. You got to go. So I'm talking about a desperate that some of us only have heard about. That kind of desperation that you've put yourself in a place, it's your fault, you shouldn't have been there, and now you got busted. Your secret has been found out, and you're sitting in jail because of a DUI. You're desperate because the last straw was one straw too many, and your spouse has walked out on you, and they've given up. I'm talking about that desperate place where there is nowhere else to turn and you can only give that thing to God. And so today, what do you do when you're in that situation, whether you caused it or you're the recipient of a desperate situation in your life, that impossible situation in your life? How do you react? Who do you turn to? What do you pray? What is God's plan for a prayer of desperation, this chapter is for all of us. And so, again, if you'll take your notes out, get your pens ready, we want to look at a prayer of desperation from Jonah chapter 2. Now, again, because I'm uh, the one who likes to organize these texts, just remind ourselves again that in chapter 1, Jonah is fleeing from God, chapter 2. He's running to God. Chapter 3, he's running with God. And in chapter 4, he'll be running against God. 
or maybe it's fleeing, fearing, following, and fuming. But the bottom line is, every week we see the next chapter give us a little different perspective. Well, I'm going to take you back to verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish. Notice it doesn't say a whale. We get that little context from the New Testament, to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I want to make this point clear. I disagree with Orson Welles. This was not punishment. This was provision. So point number one, God's, in his mercy, often provides for us in an unusual way. God, in his mercy, often provides provides for us in an unusual way. This great fish is mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament. It doesn't necessarily mean a whale. And his dilemma that he's temporarily stuck in the belly of a big fish, Jonah's life is saved by this great fish. Now, the obvious question is, could it happen? Christians would say what? Could it happen? The answer is yes, of course it can happen. And I could give you examples, I think somewhat spurious from history, of other people who have survived a great fish story. Uh, the most famous of that was in 1891 in the Star of the East in the vicinity of the Falcon Islands, and James Bartley was actually thrown overboard, captured by a great fish. Uh, and uh, actually, when they were cutting the blubber out, the guys, they uh, get him, and he's alive, and he's a crazy maniac. And he had been in that fish maybe... Uh, less than 12 hours. Uh, there are all kinds of stories like that, but my point being is, clearly God can do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And so it's only those of us who have to find some scientific answer for how this could possibly happen. And I think there's something more basic. If God created the heavens and the earth, I think he can pull this one off. He turns water into wine. He heals people. And so the big fish story, uh, you know, is really not about the big fish. The big fish story is about a bigger God. Amen? Amen. And so I believe that uh, though what we do know is that when they saw this guy that they did bring out of this whale, his skin was parched completely white. And we'll talk about that next week when we talk about preaching in Nineveh because maybe you'd repent too if this guy comes walking around with tattered clothes completely all bleached white like an albino and maybe you'd listen to the message too. I believe that it did happen. I believe it's a miracle. First God uses the storm. Now he uses a fish. And Jonah is drowned. And I believe very potentially, now I, this is again, I don't know what question I'm at at Information Center when we get to heaven, but I think maybe he actually dies and, he, and the miracles, he's revived. In fact, I think I could make a point that if you're taking the analogy of three days in the belly of a whale, then Jesus is quoting that. Was Jesus just resuscitated in the tomb or was he dead? He was dead. He was raised again. Now, we don't know that for sure, but if we follow that analogy, maybe Jonah, the mi bigger miracles, not only does he provide provision, but he is uh, recitated to life. Now, again, if you're looking at that, uh, look at Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2, and you'll see this whole process of repentance. I believe part of that three days, and you know, in the Hebrew reckoning, any part of a day is a day, so he could have been in there less, a uh, little bit more than maybe 24 and a half hours, a few minutes on Friday night, all day Saturday on Sunday, however you want to reckon a day, but the bottom line is I think it was while he is in the belly of the whale that he becomes repentant, 
Now you'd say, if you were in the belly of a whale, you'd be repentant too. I can't quite imagine, this is my little imagination kind of going wild here, if you wake up in the belly of a big fish, <laughs> what that must have been like. Now, I don't know about you, but I get kind of woozy with blood, but I get even more woozy by changing diapers. Um, and I just can't imagine this. I don't want to go there, but just the horror of waking up and you're swimming in a pool of gastric juices and the smell has to be horrendous. I'm pretty sure I would repent as well. I would come to my senses just like the prodigal son did. Number two. Our desperate circumstances help us come to our senses. Our desperate circumstances help us come to our senses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord God uh, from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress. No duh, Jonah, you are distressed. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me, and I cried for help with the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. I think he thinks he's, he's headed to hell. I mean, he's disoriented. And this prayerful plea for rescue shows that despair. Now, you've got to imagine, this is one of the most unusual prayers of desperation anywhere in all the Bible. I have to vote it as most unusual place for a prayer to be offered up. But this is the point. When we are desperate, that's when God gets your attention. Now, we should learn from that. Why do we have to push and push and push? And when we're crying, uncle, finally, we say, oh, maybe I should give this over to the Lord. And whether it's a financial situation or a family situation, we finally have to come to our senses. Now, notice the progress of salvation. I want to give you a little heads up. In chapter 1, you see the, the salvation of the sailors in spite of the storm in chapter 2, we're going to see Jonah and his salvation, his rescuing in spite of himself. And in chapter 3, next week, we'll get to Nineveh in spite of their sin. So the only thing that's recorded from chapter 1 and chapter 3 when he goes and preaches is this prayer in the belly of the whale. Now, Jonah knows his Bible, so unless you think he's just a slacker prophet who's just on a, on a little lark here, the bottom line is Jonah knows the Scriptures. And I put a little chart in your, in your notes there for you to look, look along with me. He calls out of my distress. Look at verses two, uh, verse 2 there, and then compare him to Psalm 18 and Psalm 31. He's literally quoting the Psalms. In my distress, I called the Lord. I cried up to my God for help, Psalm 18, 6. You heard my cry for my mercy when I called for you and my help. You can see how those passages in the text here in Psalms 18, 31, 88, and Psalm 103 tie to his prayer in the belly of the whale. Now, he knew who to pray to, right? He's not just praying to God's little g, to Yahweh God. And remember, Jonah put himself there. And this is where I think sometimes we find ourselves, we resist going back to God and begging for forgiveness or mercy because we feel horrible that we've caused this thing. And in our stubbornness, we need to say, I did, I, I blew it, I failed, I need you, God. You see, Jonah's disobedience is rooted in his racial prejudice, which we're going to see next week, his religious bigotry, and he was very culturally exclusive, and we'll look at that next week. You see, 
The time to pray is when you are failing. That's when we, got, we as Christians have to give back to God and say, God, I need you during this, this time. Now, this word Sheol, by the way, is the, the, uh, I think describes uh, this near-death experience, if not really the place where God clearly gets his attention. Point number three, verses three through six. God is always in charge and always has a plan. When you're desperate, remember, God is always in charge and he always has a plan. Look at verses three and following. For you had cast me into the deep. Every time I see the word you or yours, just mentally count them up, all right? Into the heart of the seas and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows pass over me. So I have said, I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were entrapped around me. I had descended to the roots of the mountain. The earth which was its bars around me forever. But you must have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Now the rabbis considered this, by the way, a model prayer of the New Testament. How many times is you or yours mentioned? One, two, three, four, five, five or six. Something like that. Five times, I think. It's mentioned, and even Jonah knows that God is the one who's placed him there. He used the sailors to accomplish his will. He uses the fish to accomplish his will, and he's bringing his plan together, even though our willing choices may not have thought that, you know, maybe we're in charge, we did this. God orchestrated every bit of this. In a way, it's not understood by us. Someone said it this way. In a way not understood by us and not revealed to us, God caused them to make a willing choice to do what they did. So five times. Now, that brings up the question. Chad and I had this question about God's sovereignty in this passage and our free will. He gave me a great illustration he heard from somewhere. If you've ever played chess and you've played someone better than you, I can tell you right now, if you play a grand champion chess player, are you going to win or are you going to lose? You're going to lose. The, the, the smart money is say lose, all right? And quite frankly, yeah, you're making all the choices you want, but in the end, that guy's going to win. Ultimately, God is always going to win. He is the master chess champion. In fact, he uses your own moves towards his advantage and in the same way. Now, let me ask you this. Um, did Jonah drown or didn't he? I've kind of alluded. I think the figurative language might push us towards that. I won't spend a ton of time, but I do believe that it fits kind of the analogy. The current engulfed me. All your breakers passed over me. Water encompassed me to the point of death. On and on and on. And again, you see similar um, wording uh, in the Psalms that David says in Psalm 32, O Lord, you have brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. And so we see this desperation, and whether it's an analogy or he really died, it's actually uh, something that we'll ask God when we get to heaven. Number four, God rescues us after we die to self. And I think that's the whole context of what we're seeing so far. God rescues us after we die to self and let go. We, he can't save us until we're willing to surrender to him. That reminds me of a time where I nearly drowned one time. Now, you would say, Pastor John, with this awesome physical physique <laughs> built for floating, how could you nearly drown? 
Well, it was spring break 1993. I was with 100 high school kids in Panama City Beach, Florida. We were snorkeling off the coast there off our little boat, and we had plenty of time. But what they did not tell us is there was a six-knot current taking us out into the ocean. Now, I was just doing my thing. I was having fun. I wasn't drowning. It was all good. I hear the whistle, and it's time to swim back in. Now, I'm about as far away from the boat as anybody in our group. We were all around each other. They start swimming. They're young, you know, they're future stars, and they're swimming, and they're making plenty of good distance towards the boat. And I'm like three strokes forward, two strokes back, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm like treading water. The boat's getting farther and farther away. They are now all on the boat. It is just me out there paddling toward the boat. Now, this is embarrassing because if you're a youth pastor, you're not really supposed to die on your own trips. <laughs> that is not a good thing. You need to get back to the boat. What would the parents think? Did you lose any kids? No, but we lost Pastor John. Bless his soul. Now, do you think that I want to be rescued? No, I don't want to be rescued. That would be embarrassing. Imagine they're all back in the boat. They're waving, going, woo, and... I'm getting a little panicked. Now, they told me that I swam once it got to that point for 24 minutes. Now, I'm swimming, and I'm running out of, of energy. And this is what motivated me. I saw the young you know, first mate deck captain rip off his shirt, and he's about to jump in. I'm thinking, there is no way I'm letting some lifeguard save me. <laughs> I am prideful. I am not yet desperate enough that I'm going to be saved by that jerk. I mean, come on, I can do this, and I am just swimming like crazy, and if we could have had a video, you would have laughed so hard. Just think stubby legs, stubby arms. I look like a gopher in the water, you know, and I'm just, and I'm turning red, and I am just paddling for all of life. Well, then I get close enough and I'm thinking, you better not jump in. You better not jump in. And then I'm saying to God, save me, save me. He's going, I'm about to send somebody for you. No, don't send him. Save me a different way. You know, uh, what am I expecting? A little dolphin like Flipper to raise me up, you know? So, so finally, I'm within about 20, 20 feet of the boat. And they don't jump in, but they throw the life preserver. I now have a choice. Am I going to take hold of that lifesaver saying, Uncle, I got you to gotta, gotta do this because if I'm not, I'm going to drown. I thought about three nanoseconds and I thought, better to be alive than dead. <laughs> I grabbed onto that lifesaver and I held on for dear life as it took four guys to pull me in. <laughs> I left an incredible wake behind me <laughs> and they saved me. Now, in the craziness of that moment, believe it or not, I thought... I don't need that. I can do this on my own. I don't need a life preserver or a lifesaver. But I'm telling you, that is exactly what happens with us and God. Maybe you are far from God. You're saying, that's not that bad. I can do this. I can get out of my own hole. I can, I can make this life something else. And yet, at some point in your life, you came to the point where you admitted, I'm spiritually drowning I can't do this anymore. And the crazy thing is, even some of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, we get ourselves in this place spiritually where we haven't lost our salvation, but we are sinking. So I want you to get your notes out here. I want to give you six 
things that happen when you're drowning spiritually, and this is little clues that you need God. Number one, we're going to feel overwhelmed, and we're going to think we can make it, we, that we can't make it because we're not worthy. Some of you are spiritually drowning because you've just beat yourself up. I'm not worthy. Number two, some of you feel that you're just entangled with the sin, and you're never, ever going to have victory over that area of your life, whether it's an addiction or something else. Thirdly, there's this feeling of hopelessness that often moves you into depression and despair. Now, we don't know all the reports, but late last night, Corey Monteith from the show Glee was found dead in his hotel in Toronto. He had been battling addiction issues for a number of years. I don't know if it's connected to that, but clearly, desperate choices were made. Number four, we wonder if we'll ever recover. When you talk to people who have really fallen spiritually, remember Jonah has fallen spiritually. He was a superstar prophet, and yet he feels, is God ever going to use me again? Will I ever recover? Number five, we believe lies about ourselves, and ultimately those lies extend in who you believe God to be. And then lastly, once you finally come to your senses, you're so grateful that you've been rescued. That's why I love to talk to those of you who are new in your faith in Christ. Because you share in ways that some of us who have known the Lord forever have forgotten that sense of, I'm so glad to be home, to be saved. When you write in the care journal about God answering prayer, and I know some of you are new in your faith, the simplicity of trust nearly brings me to tears. Because in our mechanized, roboticized, fast-paced world we live in, we just take everything for granted. And sometimes... Maybe we have to slow down long enough for God to get our attention and just once again be grateful. Well, when you're in the pits, when you are at the bottom of the barrel, when you're at the end of your rope, principle number five, remember that God is holy even if we are not. And I can, we can play the word there, if, or consider it when we are not, and we know that we're not. Remember that God is holy. Verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Write down Psalm 5, 7. That's the correlating verse to that. I, by your, my great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence, I will bow down in your holy temple. This is not an act of he had forgotten and he's remembering. The idea is I am committing. Now, some would take it that Jonah is a bit self-righteous here. He's saying... You had to save me, but at least I'm not like the Assyrians. I mean, those knuckleheads. I prayed you in the temple. They're just completely rejecting you. And you're going to see how negative his attitude is towards the Assyrians next week. But when we are at, his, at our lowest, he clearly is at his highest. I want to ask you if you've ever been near someone on their deathbed who was far from God. Maybe even atheists. That's why we say that there are really no atheists in a foxhole. But in your journey, I don't suppose that everybody in this room is a Christ follower. 
And I want you to understand something, that if you think you are good, that pales in insignificance to the holiness of the God that we serve. On the other hand, I don't expect you to check your brain in at the door, but I would love to engage you in a conversation about how you came to your position about where you and God are so far apart. I played golf this week at a golf course that embarrassed me worse than when I played with Doug Flagg the week before. <laughs> I played at Las Posas with another racquetball friend who is Jewish and is an atheist. And as Jeff and I were talking, my game got worse and worse until he brought up God first on the fifth hole and our view of abortion and my view of homosexuality and all the hot topics that any liberal would want to ask a pastor about. I kid you not, my game turned around immediately after I forgot about the golf and started talking about Jesus. There was a 15-stroke difference between the front nine and the back nine. And I won't tell you what either score was, but let's just say it had three numbers and it was over 100. It was horrible. And then he said something to me. He says, I'm glad if you're into that stuff because I invited him to come today. I won't be checking that out. And he said, um, I kind of have my own way. And he said everything, but I get God as a crutch for you. He didn't quite come out that blatantly, but it was clear that he was way above any kind of discussion that would involve a real transcendent God. Those are the people that I want to engage with. You say, you are a knucklehead. Why would you want to do that? Because they're the modern-day Assyrians. They're the ones who mock Christianity because their intellectual faculties have brought them to a point where they are the know-it-all of culture. Even though he's a really nice guy on many levels, he's going to die and face a Christless eternity and if we spend all of our time as Christians arguing with him philosophically, which that's probably not going to be the way it will reach him. My guess is the way he'll be reached is like when many of us were reached. When he comes to a place of desperation, his son dies of an overdose. His wife leaves him. He's on his third marriage. Then maybe he'd remember that crazy pastor who listened and didn't judge, asked thoughtful questions, didn't make grandiose assumptions. Now, I got to tell you, that's your call, friends. You can be doing that kind of engagement every day with the people who you come in contact with. And see, Jonah realized that in the pit there that ultimately he was not very holy. And so the next step is you've got to renounce the idols in your life. Verse 8, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Why? 
idols are worthless. You see, the answer isn't go to Baal. Where do you turn in crunch time? It's not to the idols. Now, I've told you what an idol is before, but let's define it again. An idol is anything that illegitimately tries to replace God by trying to assume its rightful place, his rightful place. Anything that replaces God can become an idol in your life. And we've said before, and I'll give you the quote again, good things that become God things that become bad things. So for some of you, that idol is sex or sports or stubbornness or self-centeredness or social acceptance. There's all kinds of little idols we allow to be put up on the mantles of our life. What's your idol? Number seven, and last principle from verses nine and 10, realize that God is the ultimate source of your salvation. That's what Jonah did, but I will sacrifice you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then, verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Unbelievable. Did you ever wonder where he got spit up? I think he got spit up right back onto the dry land of Joppa. It wasn't like anywhere near where he was headed. And salvation comes from the Lord. It's both a principle and it's a promise. It's a confession and it's a praise. It's the exact restatement of, of David's words in Psalm 3.8, which, by the way, is the very first psalm attributed to David. So God's command, he ejected Jonah onto dry land. Now, I'm pretty sure the landing was hard. Just as one little, I can't prove it. You notice it was dry land. It wasn't marshy land. It wasn't soft land. It wasn't the, 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 the mud. It was dry land. I think it was God's one little bit of humor left for Jonah. Like, and now I'm going to land you on your keister. And it's going to hurt as you land. And I think he probably, you know, rolled three times and, you know, did a, you know, sprawled out. I don't know. It wasn't pretty. But the bottom line is, all of us are escape artists, aren't we? When it's all said and done, we're all escape artists. We try to run from God. We try to do what we want, how we want it, when we want it. And in a prayer of desperation, Jonah finally gets it. I've had enough, uncle. You know, it's the greatest comeback in prophetic history, I think. There has never been a guy higher on the pinnacle of success and lower in the pits. Look at all the prophets of the Old Testament. I mean, Jonah had it all and gave it all away. I mean, the comeback is better than Twinkies tomorrow, I'm telling you. By the way, if you didn't know that, Twinkies on the shelves tomorrow, July 15th. They're back. Now, that's a comeback story. But nothing, nothing like what Jonah is going to experience next week. I want to close with this little quote from C.S. Lewis. Think of me as a fellow patient in the same hospital who, having been admitted a little earlier, could give some advice. You see, friends, as we close the service and as we, we pray together, isn't that where we're at today as well. We can kind of condemn Jonah like, man, how did he get so far from God? How did he find himself in this place? 
and we can point fingers and judge and, and do all of that. But then again, when we are desperate, ultimately, ultimately, we've got to remember those seven things. God is the source of your salvation. Renounce the idols in your life. Let go of those things that you think will ultimately give you satisfaction. And in the end, then God will hear your prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today as we think about all that you're doing in our lives, and even in the silence of this moment, maybe it's time for us to do business with you. Maybe we are we're realizing that we've tried to do this Christian life thing on our own. Some of you are Christians who believe in a philosophy of sin management, that if you just kind of keep it down, that God will somehow accept you and maybe you're not quite as bad as you were last week. That's not grace. That's not a story of redemption. That's a story of you being self-righteous trying to muster up enough goodness to find favor with God. That's not the answer, friends. But today, some of you are desperate. You're saying, I get it. I've been running. I've been pushing back. I've been trying to do it on my own. And today, I'm guessing there are some Christians in this room who for whatever reason have done battle with God in the last months of your life. And today God's saying, is enough enough? Can you let go of that thing that's, that's holding you captive? A worry? A child? A marriage? A job? That thing that you've been resisting letting go of and, and yielding to God? If that is you today, just between you and me and him, just look up at me. Just look me in the eye. Okay. I want to pray for that. Okay. Okay. Just let me see it. Anybody else? Okay. Nod your head at me. Okay. Lord, I need to let go of that. Well, Lord, that's our prayer today. And so we release it into your hands. Thank you that we have a model of a godly guy, Jonah, who in his resistance had to come to the depths of the belly of a whale for you to get his attention. Lord, you have my attention. I'm so grateful for the grace you've extended and may I not trifle with it. And I rejoice in my salvation that only comes through you. In Jesus' name, amen.